and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today, I'm speaking with another survivor, and his name's Ted Golian from Toronto in Canada. Welcome. Good morning, Paul. How are you doing? I'm very well on this gray day in Toronto. I really wanted to speak to you because I've known of you for probably four or five years, and you've always put very insightful posts and and wise posts and so I've always listened to what you've said and, and it was only recently when I actually asked you whether you would come on the podcast because you've posted something which is I guess a summation of all of those posts that you've done over the years and hopefully we're going to talk a little bit about that which is your publication or you call it a pamphlet but I think that's probably underselling it somewhat which is entitled observations of a sudden cardiac arrest survivor and subtitled what I'd wish I'd been told when I was discharged and what really piqued my interest is your background in uh, social psychology and I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that and also a little bit about briefly your cardiac arrest story. Sure, sure. Well, thank you very much for the glowing uh, introduction. My education in, in university was in social psychology. And then for my master's degree, I took a two-year program in applied social psychology, which was taking the, the art and science of psychology and, and trying to apply it to the real world outside of uh, the academic uh, sphere. And also, I... I entered a, the PhD program for clinical psychology, but uh, grew disenchanted with that and went uh, and joined a consulting firm and, and applied my skills there. So my background is in social psychology, in particularly in the research end of it. So have done some very large scale studies uh, on pornography in Canada, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> <It's> a- <laughs> I was going to say to a lay person, what is social psychology? It's, it's trying to understand people's uh, social behaviors as opposed to like personality psychology, which would be what makes uh, Paul tick. It's more what makes Paul's interaction with Ted tick or Paul in a social situation or how do people tick. So how do people interpret uh, and, and deal with uh, what other people say, that sort of thing. In terms of my, my, my cardiac arrest, I had been working with a, a group of guys, three people, for 30 years in the consulting business. We had our, a small practice, and we were just winding that up in 2013. And my wife and I took a trip to celebrate that to, to France, where I rented a bicycle and climbed Mont Ventoux, which is part of the Tour de France. And... Um, coming down the hill, had a flat tire, realized I had no uh, cell phone communication, but that's fine. Fixed the tire and, and landed safely, and we went home. And about a month later, I decided to enter a half marathon with my uh, daughter, who was uh, 23 at the time. And off we went on this half marathon adventure with my wife waiting for us at the finish line. My daughter quickly pulled ahead, and I was fine with that. And I remember the race very vividly. It was a beautiful, crisp fall day in November. I remember running toward the lake, running beside the lake, thinking this is just wonderful. And three days later, I woke up in a hospital. And that's pretty much my, my, my cardiac arrest. I have no memory of the intervening time. 
and only had the stories of other people to, uh, much like many survivors, only the stories of other people to, to fill in those gaps, which is a disconcerting uh, sort of experience, as, as you well know. Uh-huh. You, you, you said you were doing a half marathon. Um, yep. is it, it, was this a, a, and that you mentioned that you had been cycling in France as well. So were you, it sounds like you're a, a pretty uh, fit guy. I had done at that point uh, 26 marathons, including five in Boston, um, which is a hard one to get into. Uh, five in New York, one in Australia, you know, a bunch of marathons. And yeah, I, I, was, I was a runner. I was an avid runner. And interestingly, I think that that sort of worked against me in the, in the healthcare system in that I was given a pass by a cardiologist to, to run that half marathon. And that might have not been the, the most sage advice, but there it was. Uh, what, I had, why uh, had, you, had you seen a cardiologist sorry. for a particular reason then prior to, to the actual event? Yeah, and I'm not a poster boy for listening to physicians, but I had experienced angina about six months prior. I went to see a cardiologist who threw me on the treadmill. So I did the stress test and, and passed with flying colors, except there was a two centimeter depression or something in my ST segment, which suggested that there was some sort of a blockage. But they gave me a 3% probability that I would have a major cardiac event. And I think that's driven by an algorithm based on a bunch of factors, some subjective and some objective, like the, like the treadmill stress test. But I think I was given a, a bit of a pass there, thinking this is a guy who runs every day, who's run 26 marathons. And so what are the odds that there's something serious here? Eh, they're probably minimal. Yet... So I was put on a regimen of uh, a torvastatin and told to keep my heart rate low. And that eventually over time, the prognosis was that uh, smaller arteries and veins would open up in the heart and everything would be okay. And indeed, within three months, the angina completely disappeared and things seemed very fine. And then I ran the ill-fitted half marathon. <laughs> you said you were running it with your daughter. Was she is she a good runner? Were you were you um, in competitive dad mode and trying to keep up with her? That's a, that's a very good question, Paul. And you're you're too observant. You know, it's funny. It's funny because we had run two half marathons over the uh, last say eight months, and both times I beat her by a, a good margin. So there was, indeed, there was a bit of competition. However, this race, I felt pretty good that she was pulling away. And I was very content to let her do that, given the experience I just had at the cardiologist. And I thought, I'll run this race to enjoy it as opposed to, to try to beat my, my daughter. Plus, it'd be nice for her to have a win that was legitimate. So, no, I wasn't really trying to catch her. I just think it was a, it was a confluence of uh, circumstances, perhaps. And it's, it's, not, it's still not clear why that race and why not on the top of Mont Ventoux in France that I had this cardiac arrest. And, and so what happened if you didn't actually get to finish the race? I was very close. It was my first race I've never finished. <laughs> I think so. Good reason. Uh-huh. No, absolutely. Do you know what happened exactly? Who, who stepped in to help you and the circumstances? There was a, a competitive swimmer 
who, for one reason or another, wanted to run this race but couldn't. He rushed to my aid along with a, a pregnant nurse, and they both started to do CPR. A physician who happened to be walking along, just going for her morning walk, administered an EpiPen. And then rather quickly, the, the race medical people, St. John's Ambulance, came and continued the CPR. And there was a whole chain of people then doing CPR. And because it was the finish line, there was a medical tent very close by. And they brought the AED down. But uh, unfortunately, the AED couldn't restore any rhythm. And it wasn't until the EMS came in their ambulance that they got a, a faint uh, bit of rhythm from my heart. Bystanders, yeah. But uh, by the sounds of it... Um educated in this sort of field really if you've got a a nurse and a, a doctor you couldn't have had two better p- passerbys really and one one interesting thing there you, you said the doctor administered an EpiPen I mean I, I I just associate an EpiPen with people with is it allergies is that right what what is an EpiPen exactly and why would they administer it on you that's exactly true. It's, uh, it's typically for peanut allergies or bee stings, that sort of thing. And, and why maybe she had an, her own allergy and was carrying it for personal use, but it's also has been used to, to help us with uh, getting hearts beating again, like a shot of epinephrine. Ah, is that, that's what the EPI the, is a short yeah, for epinephrine. Exactly. And, and I think in the UK, we know that as a adrenaline, isn't it? I think. That's, yep, that's true. Yep. Yep. So that was that was very lucky. I mean, uh, that she just happened to be there. Do you, do you know whether that had any effect on you or not? <laughs> well, I've I've since, like I think many survivors do, tried to research everything that happened, and there is some debate as to whether administering epinephrine or adrenaline to people in cardiac arrest is a wise thing to do. But I have no idea whether it had a negative or positive impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was there was a study that came out earlier this year about that subject, and I think it, uh, the conclusion was that it slightly you get slightly more survivors, but sometimes you get people perhaps might not might have been better off not surviving, so they're okay. they're po- possibly uh, more or less neurologically intact. Oh but, dear. Uh, yeah, but I I don't think it was like really really clear the clear difference. So I think it was a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a that's a problem in general with research into survivors is that there's so few of us and the conditions are so uh, variable that it's hard to come to conclusions. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, okay, perhaps we can sort of what, what was your experience in the in the sort of Canadian health system. Post um, discharge, bearing in mind that you, I guess having a psychologist background, you sort of wouldn't. I'm guessing anyway that you have some sort of understanding of the sort of things that people might go through when they've gone through a trauma. You know, frankly, no. I think much like every survivor I've ever spoken with, I was as confused as as the next person, and and had had no insight into what was happening to me and how I was experiencing this. That, that came later, Paul, after, largely after listening to and, and reading other people's comments on, online about the experience and the shared experience. I began to get some insight into what was happening to me. I, was, uh, I felt quite helpless. And the medical system in Canada is as wonderful as it is, single payer and all that. It was all about the heart and, and the physical 
aspect of my health and nothing to do with the the, the mental uh, anguish or potential ma- mental uh, challenges coming home. Mm-hmm. What what sort of state were you in when you were discharged? Apart from crying in the car from the hospital, <laughs> I was, you know, physically I had, had had a minimally invasive bypass, which means they didn't open up my chest cavity through the sternum, but went between the ribs and left my heart beating while they did it. So the, the implications of that were, were, not, were not so bad to deal with. So I was physically very, very well. I couldn't run anymore. I couldn't walk to the end of the street without uh, you know, getting out of breath. But psychologically, it was just a, it was interesting in that when there weren't people around and when there wasn't a regimented activity to do, it was quite, I was quite despondent and confused and overwhelmed by what had happened and, and disbelief that it had happened in spite of the fact that I had these scars to prove it. Mm-hmm. So how long were you in hospital for? This, this whole thing took a week. Oh, that's quite quick, really. Yeah, yeah. It was a Sunday. I had the cardiac arrest, and it was uh, Remembrance Day, the 11th of November, when I was discharged. So, not a long time, but that's the way the healthcare system works. Uh-huh. So, when you were discharged, you're presumably back to your your family home. And was it just uh, were there many people around there? You said you felt quite lonely. Did you mean in terms of no one else around, or the fact that you? You didn't really know any other cardiac arrest survivors. It was a bit of both in that uh, uh, I had my arrest in a, in a city maybe uh, 60, 70 miles away from here. So, but coming home, my, my children were, were out of the house. So it was just my wife and I. And when she went back to work, I was left to my own devices. But even then, when she was there, I, f- I felt rather alienated because of the experience. Mm-hmm. And I had a difficult time trying to communicate that feeling of alienation uh, and, and differentness. So I, I mostly didn't try. Mm-hmm. Is, is that why you went online? I went online for, for exactly that reason, was trying to find someone who could tell me what I was uh, going through and help me figure out what I was going through. And what I did find was a bunch of people who were much the same condition I was, their state, uh, in varying degrees of progress through that, were sharing what they were going through, which gave me some comfort. And that, this was how soon after your cardiac arrest would you have gone online looking for answers or help? I think it was probably within the first couple of months of uh, of getting home when I had some free time to do that sort of thing. Uh-huh. And then I, you know, I did go to uh, cardiac rehab. But cardiac rehab in Canada, at least, is is really tailored to people who have had heart attacks and who are dealing with uh, arterial sclerosis. And, and they were, when, you know, I first met them, they were trying to be accommodating and saying, well, well <laughs> we're going to put you in with a young group. I was 60 at the time, so that kind of scared me. But, you know, so they, they're going to put me in a young group and this young group were, were not particularly young, but I suppose in the demographic they deal with, they were young, but it was all focused on diet and exercise and lifestyle modification, which for me was what I'd been doing for the last 30 years was eating well and exercising well and all that sort of thing. 
So I was a bit of an anomaly. I felt like a, even more isolated in that group. I think that's quite a common story from a number of, or quite a few people I've spoken to who you don't always get the, the rehab in this country unless you've had a, um, a, a heart attack as your cause of your cardiac arrest. I don't know if that's the same um, in Canada, but if you do get it, then a lot of people say that it's not really gauged for them, although they do do get benefits from doing it. Psychological aspect of it is 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 not so prevalent in in what they're they're trying to help you with. Well, I think Paul, the big benefit for me was, uh, I mean, not the lectures on what fiber does and that sort of thing, but rather they have, would give you an exercise prescription, and they they made a point of calling it a prescription and. They took a very, what I thought was a, a, a rational scientific approach by throwing everybody onto a treadmill and with the ECG, blood pressure cuff, blood oxygen levels being monitored. And plus they were, they're monitoring your uh, oxygen intake. So a VO2 max stress test on a treadmill to establish your base uh, strength in terms of your heart. And then middle of the program, at the end of the program, they, they measured those things to see what progress was. And then they wrote a prescription for me saying, you know, here's the kind of exercise you, you can do. Here's the limits of that. Now get out there. And for me, that, that restored my confidence because I'd felt so betrayed by my heart. And as I said in the pamphlet as well, that that betrayal, that lack of confidence in my heart sort of expanded into to other aspects of my life where I began to feel very uh, a loss of confidence in my, my own self. And the cardiac rehab exercise program restored a bunch of that. Well, that that's good to hear. Because I was wondering whether being a, a, a fit guy, whether you whether the sort of exercises that they'll give you, whether it be enough for you and maybe you would feel that it wasn't very fulfilling. It was incredibly frustrating, the exercise programs they, they were giving us because because they wanted us to start at a very basic level of walking. And I remember in, in the hospital when I was uh, in recovery from the, the surgery, I was trying to do laps around the hospital ward <laughs> in my slippers and gown. And the nurses would stop me saying, what are you doing? And I said, well, I don't want to lose my tone on my, my legs. I got to run with <laughs> And they just laughed and escorted me back to my bed. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> okay, so perhaps we could come on to, to the sort of psychological aspect of things, which um, I guess is what well it is why I wanted to speak to you in, in your uh, your booklet pamphlet or wh- whatever you want to call it, because you, you recently published into the uh, the international group, if you like, this uh, PDF, and as I said, it was observations of a sudden cardiac arrest survivor. You, you've put a lot of very wise things together, and and I've seen a lot of people say, you know, I wish I'd had that when I was discharged or when I was in hospital, and I, I totally agree with them. And I'd just like to go through a number of the sections of it, perhaps breaking it down into bigger blocks. And the first one, that, well, your first sort of uh, chapter is really sort of you, you say about the brain fog memory and the sort of I, I class that under my favorite word of sequelae and a couple of other chapters a little bit later on you say about anger and sadness and lack of verbal fil- filter as well and I, I would sort of put them all together under 
a, a similar title, really, and just wondered uh, what your own personal experiences of on that, and also what what you've seen in, in online as well from other survivors. Sure, my observations, I, I think, as you alluded to earlier, were were based on things that I had written, largely written earlier, and that for me was a form of of therapy. My getting the my feelings and my my personal observations about what I was going through down on paper helped me get through those those things so this was a, largely an accumulation of many of those observations that were i thought themes that i picked up from other people in the group but in terms of the memory fog i think that was a my my very first observation once my wife had gone back to work and i was alone in the house I would find myself staring at the fridge in the basement, wondering what I was down there for. Or my, I know my wife would get irritated because I would uh, continually forget what she'd asked me just to do. And, and sometimes she would be rather short. And I, you know, because I think she sort of wondered if I was doing this purposely, just wasn't paying attention, listening, or didn't care enough to listen. So the, the memory fog... That whole thing, and I, I know that other people have. Uh, that was a, a very common, is a common theme on the, on the sites. The whole memory issue. Many people ascribe it to the hypoxia or anoxia from the lack of oxygen during the attack, but I also think it it can be due to to other factors, which uh, I, I stated in the in the pamphlet. Just the overwhelming experience. My mind was, or my mind, anyways, was was very distracted, easily distracted. Uh, I found it very difficult to read because of the inability to to attend to one thing at a particular time. And I think that comes down to the brain fog. But whether that's anoxia or just the, the psychological experience or maybe some of the medications that people take, it's not clear to me. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably not clear to a lot of scientists, really. It's a a lot of it's still early and well, there's not a lot of research out there, I believe, on, on us. I guess it is difficult picking those part, those pieces apart. And I, I had the, the, the brain fog and the memory issues and some of the other things that you mentioned. But I, for, for two years, I didn't actually receive any medication. So I knew it was nothing, nothing to do with the actual medication in my own personal, personal aspect of things. Yeah. Uh, so. And how did you cope with it? Or- or did Not you? very well. That, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was similar to you, really. I my memory was terrible. It took me the the focus and the concentration issue was a real problem. I'm still not great at it, to tell the truth. And reading was it took me a good two years or so before I could read anything more than than maybe a paragraph and be able to actually take in what it said. And I think you know people just don't realise the the implications of the. I believe it's the anoxia or hypoxia affecting your brain. I've seen a couple of studies how, about how it affects the hippocampus, and I believe that sort of quite plays a major part in a lot of these functions that we see survivors struggling with. And I sort of put two and two together. I'm not a scientist or a doctor or anything like that, so I could be getting uh, five from my two and two equation. But to me, a lot of it makes sense at why some of these problems people are, are experiencing is is down to the lack of oxygen. Yeah, um, and- yeah, yeah. I remember the at the hospital um, again uh, after coming out of the coma, I was sent down to a cath lab. Uh, 
where they were looking at the extent of the damage to my, my cardiac arteries, looking for where the blockage was. And in real time, they, we had this conference with a surgeon, the, my cardiologist, my wife and I, where the cardiologist and the surgeon were saying, you know, you've got a choice here to make in terms of, you know, how we're going to proceed. <laughs> so do you, Mr. Galoyan, you know, want uh, uh, a bypass, a traditional bypass? You want a through-the-rib bypass? Or do you want to just, like, not have a bypass and, and risk your, you know, risk your life? And in hindsight, I thought that's a remarkable decision to be putting in the in the hands of someone who just, wow, has been struck dizzy by this experience. Yet there I was. So that to me was struck me as a as a as a particularly odd thing. And secondly, was at the end of all this, my cardiologist sort of looking me up and down, saying, when my wife asked the question, should he be seeing a neurologist or something? My cardiologist looked me up and down and said, No, I think he's he's okay. I think he's come out okay. But how he came to that conclusion was beyond me. Yeah, I, I, I think perhaps we do ourselves a, a disservice, really, in the, the brief time that we're with medical professionals. There probably are mainly cardiologists who are just primarily looking at our heart and to all intents purposes, we look okay. We we can we can talk most of us and we can walk and so that, that that's a good result as far as they're concerned. And I don't know if you know the cerebral performance category, I think it's called. And that that's quite often a measure that they use to gauge how well people have done after an event like this. Right. And it and it's a very coarse uh, scale. There's only five Five is dead, four is a vegetative state, three is severely disabled, two is you could have some um, brain injury but but can live live a relatively independent life, although you may need some support. And one is a good outcome, but it still acknowledges that you may have some deficits. So, And I think probably most people who are on Facebook in their own right are probably a category one, which is good. And, uh, but as I say, it still acknowledges that people may have problems and it doesn't really delve down into what a lot of those problems could be. And I, I do know that there is a, a research project that's uh, going to be started soon, um, looking into perhaps a new scale for cardiac arrest survivors to sort of take into all the factors that we go through. So obviously that sort of thing doesn't happen quickly, but I think it's good that someone's actually starting to look into that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know I don't blame the, the cardiologists. I, I think it's a system is systems issue. The cardiologist, they, he did, his, they, you know, did their job, but I think the, the system should have jumped in and said, okay, at discharge, this is where, you know, we can make a difference. That's <laughs> sadly lacking. Yeah, I totally agree. So going on to the sort of next bit of uh, your book, I guess is it's sort of psychological bit, which is about, I've grouped a number of them together, which is, I think it was a second part in your book, is I am not the same person. I mean, I may look the same, but I feel different. Conversely, people who maybe you you speak to that you tell them about your experience how you died in in air quotes there but they just don't get it and um just wonder if you could sort of tell me a little bit about your own experience of that and what you see other people going through 
that's that's an interesting phenomenon this this notion that I'm not the same person I strongly felt it and what I find fascinating is that now today so many years later I have a less of an understanding or memory of what that experience was like and what it's all about. I look back and think, what could I have been thinking? And how could I have been thinking those thoughts? Because I don't particularly feel that way anymore, which I think is, to me, is is, is great comfort. But for a lot of other people, I'm not sure that the, they actually have come to that and, and uh, they are rather still living with as uh, as another person. Uh, so trying to to describe now what that felt like, I just felt that somehow I had changed, and yet that change I couldn't really like speak to or, or, or define very clearly, and it became a a bit of a secret because it's not something I wanted to share with people either because it just seems so wacky that I'm not the same person, and it was it was seemed to be a very fundamental difference, a, a, a real core identity issue, as opposed to superficial things like I can't, I'm having a difficult time reading anymore. It seemed to be more basic and core to my personality. Uh, people did not notice anything, any, any difference in me. I was never did someone come up and say, you know, you've changed or anything like that. Yet I was, I was quite expecting it, and, but it never was delivered. But yeah, I mean, in terms of the I, you know, the I died thing, for me that I used that I think uh, for a little while because it gave me some some power or something in, in 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 speaking to people. But I began to realize that I was using it, and I didn't really believe it. And I don't think some many people didn't believe it either. They they would challenge it and say, yeah, you're. You know, we get into an intellectual discussion about what uh, what what death is, and I just didn't want to go there, so I stopped saying I had died and just said I had a cardiac arrest and and moved on. But uh, that's the, the 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 not the same person thing. I think is something that uh, many people seem to share, and I find that a very fascinating thing trying to understand. And I can't I can tell you right now, I, I still don't understand it, but I think there's something there that's worth uh, delving into. Absolutely, yeah. I think that the the finding normal is 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 uh, a big part of life after cardiac arrest. And I know there was, I didn't actually see him, but the hospital I was at, they had a, a psychiatrist that people could see, and he he's featured in a a film that they did, and he he talks about um the the sort of ad, I can't remember what he's called adaption syndrome or something like that about how people adapt after a, a big traumatic event like this and I, I I guess that's part of the the feeling different bit and actually becoming at one with oneself their new the new person finding finding out what that it's all meant for them because yeah I mean the fact that you don't say that you died anymore. I mean, I, I I went through, uh, I struggled for a long time how to talk about it because when you, unless you do say the word died or I was dead or use a, a, a kind of heavy word like that, people don't get the, the gravity of the situation, I think, and perhaps they, they confuse it with some of the other, um, they may have known maybe they're a relative or someone who had maybe a silent heart attack or someone who was in and out of hospital in, in an afternoon to have a stent or something like that because they had angina and they may, may conflate the two to be the same. 
And that's why I always used to say died and in, I always used to do it in, in air quotes, but I always struggled as, as well, as I said, because people also used to confuse it with heart attacks. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, as, as a society, at least in, in North America, the idea of death, it's, it's, it's a big deal. And it's, it's, I think the, the, the meaning of, of death is, is something that uh, people carry around uh, big, big, big bags of meaning of, of death. So having gone through, you know, saying you died has a lot of, uh, a lot of meaning, a lot of weight, as you said, gravitas. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's something we use to emphasize the seriousness of the situation without perhaps meaning necessarily that we actually physically died. Yet mm-hmm. it's trying to get the point across. And, you know, and, and one thing I was thinking is that a lot of the uh, emotional sequelae you're talking about from, from the, the, the cardiac arrest, they may be the same sequelae from, from, you know, any significant trauma. I just, I don't know, but I, I haven't experienced trauma <laughs> until I had my cardiac arrest. Yeah, so. you're right. It's true. I mean, this is a fairly, I guess, a, a relatively new problem, really, sort of having the right language to and um, meanings to describe these sort of things, because 40, 50 years ago, we wouldn't have had very many people in this situation that have, again, in quote, air quotes, died and came back to be able to talk about it if... Uh, <laughs> If if someone perhaps had had an arrhythmia where they were in VF and maybe they had a, a self-correcting arrhythmia, they would have prob- wouldn't have known about that really, and maybe they would have just thought they had fainted. And I yeah. do know I do know that others of um, in in the UK group have experienced that. Actually, they were told they were just fainting, and it was only years later that they actually had it recorded that they were going into the VF and essentially temporarily dying for numbers of seconds. And in one case, I think it was uh, over a minute before they actually had a full-blown cardiac arrest that, w- that needed external intervention. Right. But yeah, it, we, ne- we need the, the lexicon of language around this uh, subject to be, I don't know, explored perhaps. Yes. And, and then, you know, we're, we're left, I think, largely to interpret the significance and meaning behind what happened to us, which I think is, is a, a very interesting phenomenon. You know, yeah, as, human, that... as human beings, we want, to, we want to understand things. And it's funny how we are left to, to seek meaning and understanding of this all by ourselves, pretty much. Yeah, that that nicely dovetails into the the next bit, which was about worldview challenges and and people finding meaning or, or or finding a new purpose in their life. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a it's a very interesting phenomenon, and and I think it's actually a very a beautiful phenomenon. But but people come out of this confused and and searching, and some manage to f- extract some some positive, some very some helpful positive growth out of the experience, which I find very encouraging. And largely because they're trying to attach meaning, trying to find significance uh, in what happened. Like, why me? Why did was I chosen to, to die? Air quotes. And why was I chosen to, to be saved or come back from the death? And you see all sorts of, I mean, there, there's religious, uh, religious connotations to this. There's just I'm a I'm a darn special person, and I'm not going to go any further than that. But it's it's very interesting phenomenon how people interpret what happened to them as opposed to just you know I had uh, 
I've got this condition that led to ventricular fibrillation and I, uh, my heart stopped. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder though, sometimes when people do put that, a special significance on it and that maybe a, a certain power has, has picked them out and that they're adding a, a, an extra burden to their recovery, making them you know, a real psychological burden, essentially. What do you think about that? How so? Well, like you say, I've been saved by my. Uh, why should that be? Why? Why they they then struggle with trying to find a reason why they survived and why they've been picked right. out. Right. Yeah, and I think that, but I think it having the explanation for some is is quite satisfactory, and <laughs> the the practice then of trying to uh, figure out why, or even harder to to pay back becomes a something that can be easily put off mm-hmm. i think i think the understanding of of why me well is because the lord or whomever chose me to 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 because of some reason i think that having the explanation that the lord chose me is probably gets you 90 percent of the way there to to feeling pretty good about things i'm not sure that you know people need to, to actually go any further than that mm-hmm. okay Okay, and uh, the next sort of group you've already uh, sort of touched on, and I think it was sort of nicely summed up by a post you did do, and it was betrayed, I think it was entitled Betrayed by My Body, Um, and you you did another post as well about how you your heart had let you down the fact that you'd you'd seen yourself as you you mentioned earlier you'd had a pretty healthy existence up until that point and how perhaps you had less confidence in your body afterwards and that you were perhaps, I don't know if it it was for you personally, but there was a certain amount of shame or embarrassment for some people, certainly, who had got to that point in their lives. But what's your take on that? Or can you tell me what you've put in the book about those sort of things, confidence and the, the shame and the embarrassment? Yeah, the the lack of confidence. I mean, I did... That's totally me. I felt very much betrayed by my heart, which is, is an odd thing to say because I am my heart. But, but yeah, I, I felt extremely let down. I, this, uh, as far as I, in my naive grasp of the world, this is not supposed to happen to me. Is kind of the selfish, childish, naive way of, of putting it. This is not supposed to happen to me. I mean, I had, again, I was, uh, I was a marathoner. This doesn't happen to marathoners in, in my way of thinking. And there was a certain amount of embarrassment about that. I mean, how do I explain this to my the running community, to the people I had uh, grown up running with? That I had uh, did a DNF, uh, did not finish in a half marathon because my heart let out. It just seemed like an embarrassing story. You know, I there was a uh, a very famous runner named Jim Fix who wrote a book about running, and he apparently had an unknown congenital heart issue, and he died while running. And that was uh, that was a bit of a joke in the running community, a, a sick joke, a black dark joke. But and I sort of felt like that that here I'm the uh, I'm the Jim Fix of, of Toronto now, because which is totally silly and totally selfish and self centered. But I think that's where I was as as a survivor, very much self centered and self focused, and thinking all oh, poor me. So I did feel a certain amount of shame uh, having had a, a cardiac arrest having my heart let me down in, in, a, in a race particularly. 
you know, I think if, if it happened during sleep, I would have been felt better about it. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think it affected your uh, your identity or your your status in the community of runners and and wider um, world, really? No, I think to, Paul. To, to be honest, I think this is all in in my in my ego and in my head. It was. I don't think my status changed externally at all. Uh, people were encouraging me to get back out there and and run and when's the next marathon that sort of thing for me it was uh, I, I needed to build up my confidence that i could could run again and every time i had a premature ventricular contraction when i was running i would have to stop and you know <laughs> look at my watch and then thinking the watch is probably wrong i'd have to feel my pulse in my neck and okay okay i'm alive i can keep going mm-hmm. you, you mentioned that in the uh the the rehab was very good for your confidence would you say that the trust was built back up in your heart from that? Yes, because they gave me a very explicit prescription uh, saying that, you know, I, I could uh, take my heart to a certain level, but, and, but, and it was a conservative level. They, they, I, I knew I could take my heart higher up to 160 or more, but they were saying, you might not want to go that high because you'll get uh, premature ventricular contractions. So keep it down to 140. But, you know, there's no, there's no limit what you can do as long as you manage your heart rate below 140. And that gave me a lot of confidence. And so I would, I would run as opposed to looking at my time or my pace for running. Now it became a matter of looking at my heart rate. And eventually over time, I just stopped looking. And that's when I knew that uh, I'd, I'd turned some sort of a corner in terms of confidence in my, my heart and my body again. And that extended to other parts of my life as well. I just began to feel more confident in myself. Mm-hmm. How, how long did that sort of take just to give other people an idea? I know everyone's probably going to be different, but is it a matter of weeks, months, or even years? Paul, I think, honestly, it was three years uh, before I began to feel like I was, again, the captain of my own ship here. Um, mm-hmm. It took a while. Mm-hmm. And what about getting back to perhaps doing a half marathon again or going on long-distance cycle rides? Well, that's a sore issue around this household as to whether I can do half marathons again. I did do one two years after, and it was fine. It was fun. But my wife, I didn't realize, was very upset about that. And this past fall, I had been training for another half marathon and um, thinking that I would do a training run of 21 kilometers and show her that things were okay. And she was very disappointed. So I've kind of given up that idea only out of respect for the trauma that she went through, not to do that again. Mm-hmm. So I, I do compete. I do compete in, in shorter distance races, but uh, until she says she's comfortable with me doing a half marathon, I don't think I'll attempt that again. Mm-hmm. Even what though about I, the, the cycling, I did see you, you do go out on your bike quite a lot, and but that has its own hazards as well. I, I saw one post that you did where you had some nasty injuries from it. Oh dear, yeah. This, the cycling is is I think is less stressful it, it, on my heart. It's it's a lot harder to get up to a, uh, a high heart rate on a on a bike, but I do a, quite a bit of cycling and and uh, long distance cycling. But I do think I agree with you. The 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 consequences of cycling are not going to be in my heart. It's going to be the traffic, which, <laughs> yeah, that's a different issue. 
I think I think you've reflected on the fact that you had various scrapes and bruises to say that you were basically still here and that it was uh you know sort of woke you up to the world but it, there was another aspect of it which I thought was quite interesting and it's something that I've thought as well and it was about uh the, the longing to have a photo of when you were actually in ICU. Yes. Have you got yeah. over that yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've gotten over that. I think it would be. I, I was curious why as to why no one took a picture. Then I began to reflect: why would someone take a picture? It seemed like a, a kind of a morbid thing to do. And I tried to put myself in my wife or my children's position of here's someone I love being told that they're not going to make it. Would I actually whip out my my cell phone and start taking pictures. I I can't see myself doing that. So I, I certainly don't hold it against anyone. They didn't take pictures, but it would have been fun to have one. I think maybe it would be good for maybe a uh, a third party to actually take it, and then once you're out of the woods, hand hand it over, as it were, to so show that you are okay. But if you don't make it, or that person doesn't make it, then it can just you know, be deleted or whatever. I think Paul, yeah, I think that's a brilliant idea. But I think that you know part of the the reason for this is, and I, I don't know if you've experienced it, but it's the fact that I have no memory. I have there's no proof that any of this happened, except I know that I was in a hospital intellectually. But there's still something missing. Yeah, I totally uh, agree. So it's like a jigsaw puzzle with loads of bits missing, and I. I sort of used to say to people I'm looking for the pieces and that's why I used to sort of grill my wife and grill that person and this person who might be able to give me some answers I stopped doing that now because I know I was causing distress to her but there is there is the innate need to know what happened well I eventually went and uh, requested my medical records and I thought that might be a window into and help me clear this up and not so much trying to understand what the physicians were seeing. But again, just some sort of tangible, something I could hold on to to say that, yeah, this really did happen to me. Um, and it wasn't very satisfying. <laughs> you believe it did happen, though? <laughs> I do, I do. I, when I read the report that I was writhing in the emergency room, but unconscious, yeah, that helped. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we, we sort of touched on the, the sort of next era, which is guilt, actually. And that's not just survivor's guilt but also guilt for causing your family stress and you know I know that my my wife was involved in my rescue so I've probably put her through the most traumatic experience that she's ever going to go through and I do feel guilty for that but I've always struggled to get the concept of survivor's guilt in in our scenarios but I wonder if you could tell me about what you've got in the book from that point of view. Well, it's it's interesting, and and it sounds like a a fiction, but on the anniversary, the first anniversary of my cardiac arrest, I didn't say I drove my wife to work, and then I I just kept going. I I drove to to the city where I had the attack, and I found the exact location that I went down by using the coordinates in my GPS watch that I was wearing during the race. So I went back on the anniversary thinking, maybe if I stood on the spot— I would feel something. I would feel a memory or just a, I would feel something because I wasn't feeling anything. 
And so I went out there on this, this, this November day and it was, there was very few people there. It was on the, you know, a, a path on, running along the, the lake and I found the spot and I stood there thinking, eh, there was nothing. But as I walked back to my car, kind of disappointed, I got a, a text from one of my running partners who said, did you read about the death at the half marathon? And the half marathon was the same one I ran, but it was the day before my, my visit. And I said, you know, no. And then he, he explained that some runner, a little bit younger than I was at the time, had uh, just was approaching the finish line and had a, a cardiac arrest and went to the hospital and, and died. And, you know, that shocked me that I hadn't heard about it, but it also shocked me because here I was standing in the park where I had my cardiac arrest and someone a year later just died from a cardiac arrest. But when I read about this fella, and he was an avid runner, much like I was, and we, he and I had run many races together, but not knowing who we were. Yet, uh, and he was, he was attended to by the same people who attended to me, went to the same hospital I did, yet he, he, he died. And the more I read about the guy, the more I began to feel undeserving of surviving because he was such a nice guy. Everyone said he was a nice guy. He was known in the, in the local running community as a really nice guy. He was a very religious guy. And that to me, it was the, the, my experience with survivor's guilt because I felt that somehow he deserved to live more so than I did because I know me and this guy sounded so much nicer and better to a point where I wrote an article and submitted it to the local newspaper as a bit of a, an obituary, but more of a, my expression of who he and I were and what happened and how much I missed him, even though I never met him. And his family were, were just were overwhelmed by this. They, they loved it. But that was for me was what survivor's guilt was about. And it wasn't sort of, wasn't religious, but it, it, I just, it didn't last long, but I, I felt for, sort of funny that, that he died and I didn't. And I know it's all random, but he seemed like such a nice guy. Mm-hmm. In terms of what I put my family through, I, I felt extraordinarily bad about that. Not that I can, I should, but I, I did because I chose to run that day. And, you know, every just reflecting on what it must have been for them, because they never mentioned anything about it. They never said they felt, you know, how horrible it was for them. It was just me reflecting the fact that my daughter waiting for me at the finish line, walking the course backwards, trying to find me. Where is he? He should be right behind me. And my wife going through the same experience. I mean, I I feel terrible for that. Hmm. Well, yeah, it's a lot to unpack there. I, mean, I think it's amazing what you did with the the obituary, and I don't think to think there's any way that any of us should feel guilty for surviving. But I, what you've said there, it, I, I can understand why you felt the way you did. I, ju- I just yeah. think when it, if it's not guilt, I just want to do more to improve the chain of survival because if I do that, I know that there'll perhaps be be less people who succumb to it. Yeah, it's it's not an easy one. <laughs> no, I mean, and, and I mean, mine was it's it's a, it's a very an emotionally based thing, and I think it's a bit again self focused. But eh, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, know, the, the the last sort of uh, section that you've got in your book really is about um, wild class and sort of perhaps mental health type issues where you've got fear of the future and. PTSD and symptom sensitivity. I guess, mm-hmm. 
a lot of us go through a phase soon after. I know I did for, a, I, although I never really felt that like I had any cardiac symptoms prior to my arrest. I haven't really had any since, but I know I was more sensitive to all those heartbeats and when you had an odd one here and there. But I don't know whether it was that just a, a, a mental issue, as it were, a mental health issue, being more aware and sensitive to these sort of things. What's your take on all of these? Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's I suspect it's a very natural phenomenon to, to feel that way and to be very perceptive and over-perceptive. But you, know, you see it in, in many very varied uh, expressions where people... It's it's if you know people talk about uh, oh have you know they ask the question they pose the question have you noticed your thighs hurting since your cardiac arrest when you're running and and people are are looking to explain I think pretty common phenomena like pains and aches of of getting older or pains and aches from running and or playing rugby to to something that uh, they can grasp onto like like the cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and fear of the future, I think, is, is you know, you hear the, that's, you know, people with the the implanted defibrillators uh, are very, I think, very sensitive to to having that that instrument in their bodies, and, and quite rightly so. It's it's it is a kind of an alien entity inside your body, and it it can potentially save you, which is great, but also can give you a shock, which no one wants to get. Uh, so there's a bit of fear of of of, of having that sort of thing in there as well. The, the PTSD, I don't think, is something I've experienced, but I noticed other people have have pretty acute reactions to to triggers that put them in, a, in an awful state. And I haven't, I don't think I've experienced anything quite like that. And fear of the future, I think, is something also that is pretty normal. And I think over time, though, life just gets, for me anyways, life just got in the way and I couldn't devote much energy to that, given that I was expected to be making dinner now and sitting there dwelling over the futures is, is, is not going to get that done. Mm-hmm. But I think for some people, this could be very debilitating. Absolutely. And I, you know, I feel bad for them because there's, there's not much out there that's ready to help them. I don't know what services you'll get out in Canada, but uh, you know, counseling I feel, feel is a, a key part of helping people come to terms with what's happened with them. But uh, although there is counselling services available, mental health services are under a lot of pressure in the UK, and I'm sure that's probably true in a lot of countries. And But there's there's no sort of uh, dedicated or trained cardiac arrest counsellors that I know of anyway. You know, but I think, Paul, like what you're doing with the uh, Sudden Cardiac Arrest uh, UK, having a forum where people feel comfortable and safe enough to express some of these these very personal emotional feelings i think it is a great tool for helping people get through this and 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 restoring some 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 mental health you know people talk about symptoms and medications I, i'm not so sure a forum is a great uh, vehicle or tool for helping that but when it comes to the emotional aspects of a cardiac arrest i think the forums are they serve a great purpose and and could go even further in helping people, but I think you guys are on the right track. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think they could go further? With with some some more moderation, perhaps like a dedicated. You know, you, I'm not saying you should uh, hire a social worker or a psychologist or something, but if there was some, if it was it was a guided conversation, and I think for that you need 
administrators or moderators who can jump in and and help steer the conversation in a helpful way as opposed to just you know I had my heart I've you know I'm a three-year survivor it's not helping something like that yeah I think that's true it'd be, it would be good to have a professional help in there sometimes yeah I'm not sure it needs to be professional as much as someone just guides the conversation trying to get to an end where people feel satisfied so there's a conclusion to the a conclusion to the to the question that was asked or the concern that was expressed I think that I mean I don't know other than that I haven't given it much thought but I think there's lots of there, there must be lots of avenues because you know, we were talking about the the first site where you and I, or where you 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 met me, and I think one of the dissatisfactions there was it was it, it was a slow form. It was like snail mail, and as opposed to to Facebook, where it's very interactive and it's very here and now. And secondly, that site wasn't moderated, whereas Facebook, there is some moderation in your site and, and other sites. And, you know, people that have come through a, a cardiac arrest are, are not always considerate because of the state they're in. And it's not their fault, perhaps, but sometimes moderation is, is very necessary. The feelings can get hurt otherwise and the safe space can be, can be uh, eroded. It's very true, very true. Uh, and uh, wise words. I was going to finish on two things. Yep. I was, well, I was going to ask... Uh, how you are now, bearing in mind it's six years down the line, and whether you've got any um, tips and, or advice for anyone else. And then the last thing I was going to do is read your poem that you've got at the back of your book. I don't know if you've got it to hand, whether you want to actually read it as well. Yeah, you're asking, I mean, it has been six years, and I, I'm, I feel great. It, it's been a long six years. Uh, as I said before, I think that the first three were periods of great growth and the last last three or more periods of reflection and i'm glad that i'm come to a point now where i can reflect back on those three years in terms of tips or, or advice or uh i think being patient is uh was a hard thing for me to do being patient and and, and lowering or managing my expectations and i think the other piece of advice i would have is that um getting and this is a hard thing to do, but getting away from that that self focus for me the, the the poor me the why me the all that me 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 business and I know it's a devastating and, and emotionally draining experience to go through a cardiac arrest, but I found the more I could focus on other people, the healthier the stronger I became, and helping other people especially to me was was a very affirming and, and gave my help restore my confidence in, in, in myself. I think it's far too easy to to stay focused on oneself and just spiral into whatever you're going to spiral into to the neglect of other people. So I would say to be patient and to try to think of other people perhaps are my tips. Yeah, I think they're. I would certainly reiterate those in that I I often used to say that time is a healer, and that's essentially what you're saying be patient and uh, i found it very rewarding helping others and being a a member of the group and that as you're as as you go through the months and the years you learn a little bit more about what it means to be a survivor and passing that knowledge on um, yeah. helps in both ways you help someone else and you help yourself so it's a, a win-win i totally agree i totally agree the the poem i guess i wrote uh 
Oh, I, I must a few years back, and this this latest iteration is missing two two lines, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> is it the so, last two lines? No, the, the it was the uh, there's a there's a gap in the in the pamphlet in the poem, and there were two lines in there, in which I tried to express where I was in between. And I found it a challenge to to express something that I didn't experience. And I found it a challenge to express, like, how do you describe nothingness? And so I gave up. I I'd realized that having a blank space in between would be a better expression of where I went and what happened to me than trying to, to, to describe it. Oh, I understand that. I, I, I see what you mean about the gap in the uh in the text the way you formatted it yeah i did wonder why it was like that I must have been. well there there used to be there used to be two lines in there paul that said something about it was serene it was i don't know it was a space between words or something it just didn't capture and also i think it led people to interpret more than i was trying to say um as if i had actually gone somewhere do you, do you encounter questions about that? Well, the, yeah, I mean, the the whole afterlife, you know, being dead and the, the, the tunnel with Jesus or the family or whatever at the end of it, I, I didn't experience that. And I, I, people assume, I think, that perhaps that's what I was talking about. So I, I decided to let it go. And I think it stands... Uh, more effective to me, anyways. I'm more happy with it without the, those uh, two lines and the, mm-hmm. the gap. I think captures it. Not that anyone understands the gap. Indeed, but there it is. I think maybe uh, it, it's a good idea for a future podcast that that bit what people are uh, experiencing then in air quotes near death experience. There seems to be a, a huge interest in that. I think mostly in the United States for some reason. Mm-hmm. But there seems to be a, a real huge interest in that down there as to proof of, which is how it's being interpreted, is is proof of afterlife as opposed to people's experiences. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole podcast, you're right. Indeed. <laughs> so perhaps we could just finish on the, your reading of your uh, poem. And I'd just like to say thank you very much for uh, for joining me on this. It's been really insightful to get your views on things. And if anyone's uh, wondering what we're talking about with um, regards to Ted's book or pamphlet, as he describes it, I will be posting it into the group and also onto the website. Just so It's also available already in the, the International Southern Cardiac Arrest Group, and I believe you got it posted into or published into Amazon as well. That's right. Yep. I just, Paul, want, want to thank you for all the wonderful work you're doing. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay. And so go ahead, Ted. So thanks again. So the poem's title, Requiem for a Sudden Cardiac Arrest. Amid the confusion and chest-thumping blows, I silently slipped where nobody knows. When the lights turned back on and time restarted, though I returned not the same as when I departed. While I longed to go back to where I don't know, I just stare at the mirror, wondering where did I go? Very good. I think it sums up very well, but uh, missing part of our lives. (laughs) 
<laughs> I always want, I always joke about whether I was abducted by aliens or whatever. <laughs> that would have been a nice explanation. <laughs> well, thanks very much thanks for again, re- Paul. reading that, and thank you for spending the time to talk to me. Thank you.